Broadcast to the center of your mind. This is the Counterpower Hot Hour. This is Astoria. Welcome to the Counterpower Half Hour. Ever since President George W. Bush's invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 and Iraq in 2003, there's been revived interest in the concept of a military-industrial complex. People have wondered about the role of Dick Cheney and his war manufacturing company Halliburton in the invasions. Private military and security companies like Blackwater and their role in the Iraq war have also raised questions. There's also concerns about the reasons that the United States went to war in the first place and the length of the wars, the expenditures, and the lost lives of American soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. American military activities in places like Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay have raised questions about military accountability. The continuing huge arms sales by companies like Raytheon, Boeing, and Lockheed Martin have raised further questions about the unwarranted influence of these corporations on American policy. President Dwight D. Eisenhower famously discussed the, quote, unwarranted influence of the military-industrial complex, end quote, in his farewell speech in 1961. But Eisenhower's warning against the military-industrial complex wasn't the first time the term had been used or talked about. His warning hinted at major concerns in the United States about the intersection of government, corporate profits, and the military that had been expressed a lot by pacifists since before World War I, and even the American Civil War. There are a few arguments against the military-industrial complex. One of these is the merchants of death argument, whose proponents believe that weapons manufacturers encourage wars for their own profits. Another is the garrison state argument, which asserts that future societies would be highly militarized at the expense of individual liberties and democracy. In this episode, we're going to examine some further critiques of the American military-industrial complex. We'll first look at President Dwight D. Eisenhower's famous farewell speech. Then we'll look at Major General Smedley Butler's essay, War is a Racket, and an essay called Pentagonism, a Substitute for Imperialism, by Juan Bosch, the former president of the Dominican Republic. These people saw the United States fight wars and questioned the reasons why America was fighting them. So what exactly is the military-industrial complex? It can be broadly defined as the intersection between public and private interests where the profit motive is combined with the formation and implementation of policy. The military-industrial complex in the United States typically includes the military, certain parts of the executive branch, such as contracts with the Department of Defense, and the legislative branch, which includes lobbying by military contractors, and the protection of military spending that would benefit certain districts by members of Congress. So let's have a look at Eisenhower's warning. In Eisenhower's Chance for Peace speech, which was given in April 1953 in Washington, D.C., he focused on the destructiveness of war, but he also focused heavily on war expenditures. This was his first major speech as president, and it was worked on extensively. Here's a clip from Chance for Peace. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, Every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. 
The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete pavement. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is, I repeat, the best way of life to be found on the road the world has been taking. This is not a way of life at all, in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. In 1961, President Dwight D. Eisenhower delivered his farewell address in a television broadcast. The farewell address would give him a chance to speak to the American people without having the press filter his message. During this speech, among the warnings about Cold War global communism and American decadence, Eisenhower gave his famous warning about the military-industrial complex as a force that could exert influence on American policy. Here's that clip from Eisenhower's farewell address. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. How to do this? Three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. The military-industrial complex was only part of the speech, though. He also warned against large government, the growing relationship between technological research and government subsidies, and excessive government spending. Eisenhower also didn't mention the merchants of death argument we looked at earlier. He didn't say that arms manufacturers and military contractors encouraged wars for profit. But he focused instead on national debt that came as a result of military spending and the decline of individual liberties. Despite Eisenhower's warning, he was a part of the military-industrial complex himself. This was not just because he spent almost his entire adult life serving in the highest places in the American government and military. During World War II, he had served as Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Forces in Europe. 
but also because during his two terms as president, there was a massive buildup of nuclear weapons, which was one of the things that made the military-industrial complex so terrifying during the Cold War. Total American nuclear warheads went from a count of about 1,000 in 1952 to about 23,000 by the time Eisenhower left office. This rapid growth hints at the influence of the military-industrial complex even during Eisenhower's presidency, and leads to questions about when he thought it was something to be concerned about. Chance for Peace and his farewell address, which both warned about the military and massive military expenditures, are considered bookends to his presidency. During his presidency, Eisenhower's framework for national security was called the New Look. The New Look focused on a balance between military strength and fiscal responsibility, support for non-communist American allies, and the contestation of the spread of Soviet communism. It advocated the use of nuclear weapons as retaliation against communism. There were economic reasons behind Eisenhower's New Look, too. By transferring American strength and security to the use of nuclear weapons, this would reduce the cost of going to war, as nuclear weapons cost less than conventional forces. There was also a major reduction in defense spending in 1955, and the army was reduced by 500,000 troops. However, disarmament was never realistic for the United States during the Eisenhower presidency. Now let's look at War is a Racket by Major General Smedley Butler, who was a United States Marine Corps Major General and was the most decorated Marine in U.S. history at the time of his death. Butler was involved in military actions in France, the Philippines, China, Central America, and the Caribbean. Butler said that, quote, For a great many years, as a soldier, I had a suspicion that war was a racket. Not until I retired to civil life did I fully realize it." End quote. Butler wrote Wars a Racket during the 1930s while World War II was brewing. Butler opened his essay by saying, quote, War is a racket. It always has been. It is easily the most profitable, the only one international in scope. End quote. Butler argued that warmongering is done for the few who make a lot of money off of it at the expense of the majority, who die in these wars. He pointed to World War I, during which a small group made huge profits off the war. In exchange for the potential deaths and casualties of World War II, Butler said, quote, There would be a compensating profit. Fortunes would be made. Millions and billions of dollars would be piled up. By a few munition makers, bankers, shipbuilders, manufacturers, meat packers, and speculators. They would fare well." End quote. Butler also pointed out that up until 1898, when the United States acquired its first overseas territories in Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines from Spain after the Spanish-American War, America had no overseas territories and stayed in line with George Washington's wishes that the U.S. enter no entangling alliances. But after World War I, America's national debt had soared, while wartime profits were the main concern of businesses on the inside of this racket, the main cause for going to war was often made to seem like it was something different, something aside from profits. The desire to go to war was cloaked in language of patriotism and dedication to American victory, but the profits for these companies were enormous. 
One of Butler's many examples of corporate war profiteering is Bethlehem Steel, which had typically manufactured rails and bridges, but shifted to manufacturing war material during the war. Between 1910 and 1914, Bethlehem Steel's profits were $6 million. During the war, Bethlehem Steel made almost $50 million a year. Butler then turned to discuss how the regular American person pays the bills for the military-industrial complex. He asserted that the average person provided these corporations with their profits through taxation, particularly through war bonds. But Butler went on to say that no one paid more of a price than American soldiers. Normal boys were taken from schools, factories, and offices and placed in the army, where they were changed and made to think and become like killers. After the war, these same boys had to come back after being trained to fight and kill and adjust to regular society. This permanently damaged these boys. There were thousands of these boys dead who paid the ultimate price for the bill for war. In previous American wars, like the Civil War and the Mexican-American War, soldiers were paid for their service. But beginning in World War I, instead of using payment to get boys to enlist, propaganda was used instead. Soldiers were paid far less than they were in previous American wars, and boys were made to feel unpatriotic if they didn't join the army. These Americans went to war only to be hurt and killed by munitions and weapons made by the United States, or with American patents. According to Butler, the only way to end this racket was to end war profiteering. Quote, the only way to smash this racket is to conscript capital and industry and labor before the nation's manhood can be conscripted. One month before the government can conscript the young men of the nation, it must conscript capital and industry and labor. Let the officers and the directors and the high-powered executives of our armament factories and our munitions makers and our shipbuilders, and our airplane builders, and the manufacturers of all other things that provide profit in wartime, as well as the bankers and the speculators, be conscripted to get $30 a month, the same wage as the lads in the trenches get." End quote. Butler supported a military for defense purposes only. Now let's look at another famous essay on the military-industrial complex. Pentagonism, a substitute for imperialism, was written by Juan Bosch in 1968. Bosch served as the first democratically elected president of the Dominican Republic in 1963. Prior to that, he had been the leader of the opposition in the Dominican Republic to the regime of Rafael Trujillo. Bosch had seen the United States intervention in 1965 due to American fears about the Dominican Republic going communist after a period of unrest and instability in the country. American military power is focused in the Pentagon. Bosch points out that Americans can vote in the president, vice president, senator, and governor, but they can't vote for military officials or the chief of the CIA, despite the fact that these unelected officials can spend the voters' taxpayer dollars. The Pentagon lives at the center of the life of the United States, but there are no legal checks on its power. With the exception of the years between 1939 to 1945, when the United States was involved in World War I, America's military spending had typically been less than its federal spending. But beginning in 1951, military spending began to take over 50% of the funds raised through taxation. 
According to Bosch, this symbolized the shift in real power from the federal government to the Pentagon. Pentagonism did not just involve the military. Financiers, businessmen, the media, politicians, and advertisers all played a role. The United States ended up becoming a country with two governments, the federal government for the internal affairs of the country and the Pentagon for the rest of the world. An international scope was required for Pentagonism to function, and its military actions around the world would create billions in the United States. During the Cold War, Pentagonism was spread internationally through fear of communism. The power of Pentagonism was spread through the military forces of other countries. Bush wrote that leaders of foreign states would bow to American military power for protection from communism. These dependent countries purchased American military equipment to ensure that their armies would be armed by America's war industry, so in turn the United States could reap the profits of Cold War anti-communist paranoia. Bosch argued that Pentagonism was different from the imperialism of old, which had come to an end in World War II. The old imperialism was the colonization of territories, where the colonizer would strip territories of resources for its own use and invest any excess cash in these colonized countries to maintain industrial production. This type of imperialism required a military in order to conquer and maintain these colonies. According to Bosch, this type of imperialism no longer existed. It's been replaced by something he calls a superior force, Pentagonism. Pentagonism is the last stage of free market capitalism, and what Bosch calls the product of overdeveloped capitalism. Pentagonism is similar to imperialism in the sense that it has all the destructive aspects of the old imperialism, but it's different in the sense that it doesn't require a military takeover of a colonial territory. Bosch asserts that in Pentagonism, the territory that is taken over is positions of power in the mother country, and the resources being sought are war profits. The colonized people are Americans themselves, whose taxes are used to create military material, which led manufacturers to profit off of their sale. In Pentagonism, the colonial territory is just a place where expendable war material is sent after it's been manufactured and paid for in the US. Bosch looked at the American military intervention in Vietnam, Cuba, and the Dominican Republic and saw American military power being used there. But, according to Bosch, the US had no political plans for these countries. There were no political plans because the United States was no longer a civil power, but a military power directed by bankers, military leaders, and industrialists. According to Bosch, the American government and American citizens had become colonized by Pentagonism, and so they couldn't have their own independent foreign policy, as the whims of the Pentagonists came first. Pentagonism had its own doctrine against subversive wars that would justify its use of military force and intervention around the world. Quote, Every effort at revolutionary change anywhere in the world is contrary to the interests of the United States. It is the equivalent of a subversive war against American order and consequently is a war of aggression against the United States, which must be answered by the military power of the country, just as if it were an armed invasion coming from outside the national territory." End quote. This doctrine against subversive wars can be seen in America's actions in the Dominican Republic and Vietnam. Bosch asserted that Pentagonism was active most in Latin America and Vietnam. 
He viewed America's imperialist war in Vietnam as Pentagonism in action, which was then refined further in America's invasion of the Dominican Republic. In Vietnam, when the South Vietnamese army was disbanded by the Viet Cong in 1964 and 1965, America sent over its military as a substitute for the South Vietnamese army. In the Dominican Republic, during the civil unrest and coup in 1965, the native army was wiped out and again replaced by an invading American army. According to Bosch, these invasions were essentially practice sessions for the United States to refine its unique form of imperialism and enabled it to continue fighting communism through pentagonism during the Cold War. Peacetime in the United States has not resulted in a decrease in military spending. The large amount of military contracts has resulted in a gun belt region in the United States. During the 1950s, Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, and Pennsylvania made up the gun belt. But since the 1980s, California, Texas, Florida, and Virginia have been the biggest recipients of contracts from the Department of Defense. The end of the Vietnam War and Cold War didn't bring any cutbacks in defense spending. In fact, government policy shifted to support major arms sales by companies like Boeing, General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, and Raytheon. In 1968, the Foreign Military Sales Act was passed by Congress. This act made the transfer of arms a commerce issue rather than a foreign aid issue. This essentially made it easier for arms manufacturers to make massive sales. In 1971, a new department was created in the Pentagon called the Defense Security Assistance Agency that would assist and promote the sale of arms abroad. This all happened just as the Vietnam War was coming to an end. President Reagan also oversaw a massive military buildup during the 1980s at the end of the Cold War. In recent years, the military-industrial complex has taken the form of the merchants of death argument that we explored earlier. The United States has become the largest seller of arms in the world. Military spending during the Obama administration was over trillion dollars per year, which was higher than it was during either the Vietnam War or the Cold War. But despite rising costs, military spending today is a smaller percentage of the United States' overall budget than it was during the Cold War. But the bottom line is that what Eisenhower said in his Chance for Peace speech is true. Money spent on the military is money that could be spent on other things that would benefit American society. Eisenhower believed that an alert and knowledgeable citizenry would be the only way to stop the ever-expanding military-industrial complex. This has been an episode on ways of thinking about the military-industrial complex. All sources and further reading can be found on counterpowerhalfhour.com. Thanks for listening.